0: Working Drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Derek Mixon. For the last few years, Derek has been the drummer for country singer and songwriter Chris Stapleton. Derek played drums on all of Chris's award-winning solo albums to date. Originally from West Monroe, Louisiana, Derek drew inspiration from his surroundings that included his father, who was a professional musician. The musical sensibilities he learned early in life, as well as his time in Nashville over the last 20 years, has been the preparation that was needed to play the role of drummer, supporting one of the most prolific writers in modern country music. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. When you're on iTunes, please subscribe. This helps us grow. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support what we do here at the podcast, Working Drummer, there are two ways that you can do that. We offer a PayPal button on the front page of the website. You can also find us at Patreon, at Patreon slash Working Drummer. Any donation is much appreciated, and it helps us cover the expenses of producing this podcast. Here's our bi-weekly check-in with Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville.
1: Hello, Matt.
0: Hey, RJ. How are you, man?
1: Hey, I'm doing okay, man. I'm a little sick right now.
0: Oh, no, man. What's going on with that?
1: Yeah, I got like that end-of-tour crud, I think. You know, we just got back to Dallas yesterday, and like the last couple days of the tour, I was starting to kind of feel... have like a sore throat and starting to feel like congested and stuff like that. Yeah. And I tried to... Try to pound like some vitamin C and zinc to stave it off, but it didn't really work. Now it's pretty much like full blown case of the itis the, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well <laughs> but, um, I mean keep in mind you know it's so it's so interesting that uh, i I heard about this forever before I ever was on a tour bus that you are essentially a you know a test tube rolling down the, the road. with recycled air that little window uh, sometimes in the back uh, you know or in the bathroom if if, you know whatever but most likely Mm. it's it's no surprise and it's really hard to stay healthy when you're out there in in that respect
1: yeah yeah I have a theory that your body can sense when the tour is coming to an end like your (laughs) body's like working like extra hard to keep it you know keep its immune system up and going when you're out like you know in our case you know for the beginning of a month-long tour and it's like you know you're going you're two weeks in three weeks and you're still feeling great and then you start thinking to yourself oh man we got three shows left, and that we're we're off for a month that always seems to be where i start to start to feel it you know like and i like i, I that's my theory it's not you know, i'm not a doctor i just play one on Television, that's but. right.
0: So, time off. Uh, you're in Dallas.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm in Dallas right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to be here for a couple days, probably. Yeah. Um. Then back out to out to Nashville. I, I was mentioning that um that gig down Lower Broad that I'll be doing. That's like next week. Gotcha. And uh and that recording session uh, looks like it's happening next week as well. Like a couple days of recording some rockabilly stuff um out there uh that's next week so i'll be i'll be out there next week and then have to come back to dallas the week after that um to do a little bit more recording with the rev on that instrumental project that we're working on like re recording a bunch of his instrumentals gonna go to wisconsin to visit the folks for a few days and then back down to nashville to hang out and, um, you know, hopefully do some playing, but for sure I'll be there, um, for that festival that I was ta- telling you about called the Nashville Boogie, right. um, which is, yeah, it's, it, that's like the 23rd through the 26th.
0: And tell us quickly what that, that is.
1: So, yes, yeah, so it's um it's a festival, it's a, like a Roots Rock, Rockabilly, um, you know, Roots Music Festival similar to the Viva Las Vegas festival that that my band just we just headlined in Vegas uh, on this la- in, on this last tour actually on the twentieth. Um, and so it it takes place the uh, Nashville Boogie takes place at the Opera Land Hotel, like you know, in, in different parts of the Opera Land hotel. And um it's uh, I think three, four days of Uh, You know, acts from all over the country and a few international acts as well. I'm hoping for two full weeks in Nashville this month. And then we go back, we go back out with, I go back out with a rev at the beginning of June uh, for a tour of the Northwest and then into Canada for about two and a half weeks.
0: Well, cool, man. Get better, take care of yourself, rest, just, you know, do all the things that, you know, your mother's. Told you to do all your life, <laughs> right? Take your own advice, her <laughs> advice. But we'll we'll catch up again soon.
1: Yeah, sounds good, Matt. I really appreciate it, man.
0: Sure, man. Talk to you soon.
1: Sounds good, brother. Bye bye now. Bye.
0: So here you go. Here is my conversation with Derek Mixon. The Opry, for a lot of people, is like Mecca. Yeah. For a lot of gigs, right. and I get that. Um, but I grew up watching Austin City Limits me too and it's just one of those places where you're like the lights and the sound and everything like that just is really cool and it's more of an intimate like performance yeah. than the opera in many ways yeah i wanted to ask about that
2: that was one of the things for me that i always wanted to do that was one of those those shows that i always wanted to play because uh, i grew up watching it my dad you know used to watch it when i was a kid mm-hmm. in the 70s and uh so I grew up watching those performances on there, and then when I got in the music business, it was always kind of in the back of my mind, like that was the the thing that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and uh, never really thought it would happen. But then it did happen. So. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's it's it's like the Opry in the uh, in the. The tradition aspect of it, you know, because it is a tradition. It's it's something that's been going for a, lot, you know, a long time. And um, there's that, but, you know, and then there's the energy of, of actually being there and knowing, you know, I guess in, in with the traditional part of it, uh, knowing all my heroes have played on that stage, right. you know, right. and I've been watching these performances all my life. And so, you know, it can be be kind of heavy but at the same time it's, it's fun it's exciting yeah to be there actually doing it you're thinking i've been watching this show for <laughs> you know all my life literally yeah and here i am you right. know, playing on it so
0: yeah i want to ask like kind of as a production not having ever done the show before right is there something unique about soundcheck about in between soundcheck and showed is there something that is any any pre-production type stuff, instructions they're giving you.
2: Yeah. Um, you, we showed up. Uh, it's pretty simple, really. We showed up earlier in the day, and we did a sound check, which basically consisted of uh, getting camera blocking, yeah, getting the audio right. And our sound check was more sort of a rehearsal for that show. Okay. I think, if I remember correctly, we, we pretty much ran uh, what we were going to do for the show that night. Oh. during sound check so yeah. that they could get the cameras set and uh, we had uh, I want to say we had our our own engineer on that and he was setting things in the booth for the audio portion of it and then we did that and uh as I recall we had some dinner and then we they brought the people in you know into the theater uh, just like any nor- normal show would be right and then we walked out on stage and did what we did, and that was it. Yeah. Of course, later on, they, they edited some of it. Okay. That we actually performed more than you saw you know, gotcha. on TV. Right, right. Um, and I think that was kind of up to them as to what they wanted that segment of their show to, to look like and sound like. And yeah. so they chose what they needed out of that.
0: Yeah. It. I always guess that that's probably the way it is. Yeah. You look at the number of people in there, and then the you know you know that they're not piling in for a twenty minute set or hour.
2: No, it was a it. standard, probably an hour and a half set that we yeah. did, and then you saw what thirty minutes of it maybe, right on TV. Yeah, but that's kind of uh, that's kind of the way a lot of those shows are run. Um, those people that are that are doing the production on these shows are so good at what they do, and they make it easy for everybody. It's no different with. Uh, with the Tonight Show or Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. or any of those shows, mm-hmm. you got people that are doing production on those shows that might have been there since the show started. Yeah, and they have a very set way of doing things that works, mm-hmm. and everybody kind of does it the same way because it works. Yeah, and uh, it's they they make it really easy for you when you go, you know, for, you know, for Austin City Limits or, or you know any of those other shows. They're just so good at what they do, you don't have to work very hard. Sure, you sure. Know?
0: What was the first kind of show or TV performance that you guys did, or that you did? Letterman. Letterman.
2: Letterman. Yeah. It was the last, it wasn't the last show on Letterman, but it was, I want to say, in the last two weeks of filming before Letterman went off the air Okay. that we played. Yeah. And uh, again, it was just, that one was like, that was a whirlwind, because <laughs> that was our first first time to ever be in New York doing TV show do
0: you remember what year that was that that would have
2: been uh, 2015 I think okay that was early
0: on then
2: yeah okay Um, yeah it was very early on it was right after Traveler came out okay or right around that time Uh in fact I think it might have been before Traveler came out that we played the Letterman show I think sort of to promote Mm -hmm. Traveler coming out Um, yeah that was the first one we did and it was it was exciting. Yeah, yeah,
0: I bet so, man. Yeah. It, uh, so much has happened in a really short amount of time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it has. Uh, it's It's been amazing, man. It really has. Um, it's It's been quite the experience. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it keeps going, you know. We still have things that that we're doing that I look forward to, you know, things that I haven't done before. Yeah. That are, you know, yet to happen. So. Right. What's the current news
0: with, with you guys?
2: Well, um, currently, uh, I guess the next thing we have coming up is uh, Jazz Fest coming up in May. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, again, that's, that's kind of a big deal for me because I grew up in Louisiana. Yeah. So Jazz Fest was always one of those things that you sort of aspire to do as a musician, play Jazz Fest. And um, we played it a few years ago on one of the smaller stages very early in the day. And so I felt like at that point, well, I've made it. I played jazz fest. <laughs> and now mm-hmm. this year, uh, we're fortunate enough to be able to go back and headline, uh, jazz fest for one night. So that's exciting. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's one of those things like I was talking about that I look forward to because it's just another thing that I can cross off the list The things that right. I've always wanted to do. Right, you know? right, right, right. Um, but beyond that, we have, a. Uh, we have a tour plan for later on the year. starts, uh, I think, in July, and will run to, you know, probably November. Okay. And uh, and then we'll take a little bit of time off and uh, probably go back in the studio at some point this year or you know early next year.
0: You're from Louisiana. Yes. Where in Louisiana?
2: West Monroe. Which is the northeast corner of Louisiana?
0: Okay. Is your family musical? What? Where? Where did you find discover drums for you or music? Uh,
2: um, my family has a musical history. My dad was a musician. He was a bass player, and uh, that's kind of, I guess, how I arrived at the drums. Uh, I would, when I was really young, uh, my dad played professionally for many years, and then. When he started family and you know I have a sister, and you know he got off the road, he stopped doing that and mm-hmm. uh, focused on, on other things. Uh, but he still loved music, and he always wanted to be a part of music. So he would take me to these jam sessions with him when I was maybe, I don't know, nine, eight, nine, ten years yeah. old. yeah. And I always sort of watched the drummer whenever I would go to these things. Yeah. And because it was just the most interesting thing to me. Sure. And I guess at some point I probably mentioned that I'd like to try to do that, and and he encouraged it. And he, yeah. I got to the point where I would go to these things with him, and it might be in somebody's living room or, you know, somebody's deer camp out in the woods, wherever it might be. But mm-hmm. at some point, I got invited to sit in and play the drums. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was probably... Terrible, you know, because I didn't know what I was doing. I had just <laughs> seen somebody else do right. it, uh, but that was, I think, probably the start of it for me. And then it just grew from there. Uh, I kind of got got the bug, you know, and mm-hmm. and there was nothing I could do about it. It's all I wanted to do. Yeah. And then it it went from there to uh, you know play in, in uh, school band. I played in the school band through junior high and high school, and.
0: Did you ever pick up a teacher during that time?
2: I did. Um, well, kind of. I had I had private instruction briefly uh, and intermittently um, with a couple of different guys that were there uh, in Monroe, West Monroe area, and they were really good. Um, but what I I think what I where I got most of probably what I have today was just from listening to records and trying to play along with records. I remember getting out of school, and when I was in high school, I remember like I would get out of school at 3 o'clock or whatever, and I would go home and set up my drums outside and get... Well, at that point, I had a cassette player, yeah, and I would put whatever my favorite tape was at the time in, put my headphones on, Mm -hmm. and just sit there and play for hours. Mm -hmm. Try to copy what the drummers that I was listening to were doing. Yeah, And uh, I think I probably learned more there in that time than I did from any teacher or anything. Mm-hmm. Not to take away from, you know, say, like uh, band directors or, or something like that. Yeah. They, they They gave me a lot of things that I couldn't have gotten from listening to records and try to emulate that. Right so i guess maybe the two things together but also for my dad you know him sure. constantly saying you should listen to this if you want to do this you should listen to this mm-hmm. and so there i have things that i listen to this to this day that that were probably my earliest influences that i still listen to and still try to do like like i was a kid sitting there with my headphones on yeah, you know yeah. um so yeah that's that's kind of the beginning of it
0: i feel like i, I always enjoy like getting the background of d- the the discovery for a lot of players and how they came upon it because everyone's story is unique and yet there's a a really common narrative of how we discover music and drums and the role that education plays in it whether it's a private teacher or band director or church or whatever yeah and sometimes those people help connect the dots, but those dots are the fascination that we, uh, the relationship that we have with the bands that we discover, Yeah, you know, that first time we heard Zeppelin 2, the first time that you are able to play a groove along with the music. Right. And I'm With You, for me, it was cassette tapes and some vinyl.
2: Yeah. I had a record player too, but it it wasn't as uh, as uh, easy to transport right. as a cassette player was. Exactly,
0: you know? and you didn't have to worry about um, cassette tapes. You wouldn't have to worry about them skipping if you have them close to the drums. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because even some CD players, man, could skip yeah. if you're just if you're whaling. But I can say the advantage of uh, I used to play along with this is hilarious: The Wall and Amy Grant's Christmas record. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I think, I need to find out who played drums on that. But the drumming on that, that was like my introduction to Nashville drumming. Okay. There was some great stuff. but the, I mean, more records than that, but I can tell you that the vinyl on those two records taught me dynamics, because if I played too loud, the record would skip.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to learn that. It's you know, it sticks with you. It does. Yeah.
0: So you played outside, like you set up outdoors. Yeah,
2: you know when the weather was nice. Yeah, we uh we lived kind of out in the country, and so I didn't have to worry a whole lot about neighbors. Gotcha. At that time, um, so yeah, my my parents had this patio on the back of their house, and it was it was shaded, and I could get out there and set up my little four piece drum kit, and and you know just get out there and make all kinds of noise for as long as I wanted to. Yeah. And I think my parents are probably happier because I wasn't in the house making all that noise. <laughs> That's true. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a fun time. It was it was a formative time for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it is. I think it is for a lot of people, uh, especially because we're just sponges so much at that age. Sure. And so it's so fun to to see that development. Um, do you do you have kids now?
2: I do. I okay. have one. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that you get to experience that and see that and relate to that.
2: And yeah, them. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's an amazing thing.
0: Yeah. We were we were talking about living in Nashville, and you said you've been, I've been here for about 20 years, and you said you were about, about the same. About the same, yeah. So making that transition from that time to Nashville, what was going on? You were, I know there's a couple bands that I've heard about.
2: Yeah, yeah. I played in a lot of cover bands around the area, you know, pretty local stuff, uh, clubs and, uh, you know, country clubs and festivals and just, you know, whatever came along. And then I got a chance to go on the road with a band, uh, a band called Howard shaft. And, uh, I believe, you know, maybe one or two of those guys from that group. Um, or maybe it's your partner that knows them.
0: Maybe Zach.
2: Alvada okay. Does. I think because that's how I got
0: Equinox. Yes. Orchestra. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Anyway. Mm-hmm. So with those guys, and we we went on the road and we toured for about three years, and it was a fun. Band. It was a it was a, a big band. We had a big horn section, and uh, we were doing mainly covers and a few originals. But it it was an opportunity to get in a van with a bunch of guys and drive around the country play music which is exactly what i wanted to do at the time right um so i did that for i don't know probably three or four years and and that uh, again was another formative experience um a time in my life where i learned a lot uh not necessarily about drumming although that was part of it as well you know the musical growth that happened and, and and me learning uh more about music and and you know how to interact with other musicians on stage, but also, uh, you know, the experience of of being in a van with a band right. and tra- and pulling a trailer around and getting from point A to point B and sound check and do the show and then you know get back in the van and and drive another you know two three four hundred miles whatever it may be to go to the next show over and over and over and over again. We were doing. I mean, I would say probably 250 shows a year. Holy cow! Yeah, so it was busy. It was like nonstop around that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so that that lasted for a few years, and then that sort of wound up uh, for whatever reason. It, it you know bands break up, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that's one of those that one of those ones that did. And uh, it was right along that time when I thought, well, maybe I need to start considering something bigger. Mm-hmm. than what I've already done yeah so that's why I started thinking about moving to Nashville okay and uh, so yeah that happened uh, 2001 was when I made the move and uh, one of the guys that I was in that band with Howard Shaft had just made the move before me a guy named James Cook bass player and uh, one of my one of my long time best friends he had wound up moving here and uh Called me and said, "Hey man, you need to you need to get up here, and you know see what this place is about." Right. So I did, and I, I think I slept on his living room floor for quite a while, <laughs> six <laughs> weeks or whatever, till I could find a job and you know get my feet on the ground and get an apartment and stuff. Sure. Yeah.
0: It's it's always seems like there's like ambassadors for us, you know, friends and people that we know that have moved someplace. And whether it's Nashville 4 or New Yorker or whatever, and they said, man, come on. Yeah. Kind to give that invitation. Yeah. You got to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Lee Kelly? The drummer? I do. Okay.
2: I've known Lee Kelly. He's one of the first guys I moved when I met the to town. Uh, when, when, first I like guys that. I met when I moved to town. Sorry. <laughs> what good. are you putting in this coffee? <laughs> uh,
0: truth serum, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he mentioned the band The Levies.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That so. was with James. James Cook was the bass player in that band. The same okay. guy that I sort of moved to town with. Yeah, or shortly after. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: And was that a hometown
2: band? Well, it it was well, not. Well, not really. Um, it was a Nashville-based band, but three of the four members of that band were from North Louisiana, and we just happened to all meet up here in Nashville. Right. And then the fourth member of the band uh, was originally. He was born in Louisiana and grew up in Kentucky, and then we met him gotcha. here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. So the Levies was a fun band. Um, we did uh, since we were all kind of from Louisiana, we tried to do things sort of from that perspective, and we we wrote songs and recorded an album, and they were all kind of in that you know pointed towards that Louisiana. Uh, feel I guess you could call it just this you know drawing from the the influences that you would find in Louisiana country blues gospel jazz uh, rock you know early rock and roll Mm -hmm. those sorts of things and sort of combining all that to make something that was different
0: what about your time here so you moved here about the same time I did yeah Um, and I know there's some different groups that you played with I uh, hear Sam Lewis and yep. Kenny Vaughn. Yep. Um, what was what was kind of a, a what were some ways that you got started working when you first moved down here or up here? I um, should
2: say, yeah, up here, <laughs> geographically speaking. Um, man, I just you know when I got to town, I started going out and meeting people and uh, started going to these jam sessions that they would have. You know, they used to have uh, the they called it the blues jam but it wasn't always the blues jam You're it was right, just right. a bunch of musicians getting together and playing whatever mm-hmm. which is cool that's fine but that was a good way for me to to go out and meet guys that had just rolled in from wherever you know yeah. and they were trying to meet people too and so I think uh, you know that that's what got the ball rolling yeah uh, plus you know knowing knowing at least a couple of people when I moved to town, Help me. Um, but I think it was about a month after I got here that I wound up uh, going with a, a rhythm section and auditioning for a, a country artist, and we got the gig. Hmm. So, you know, it wasn't too long before okay. I started working. Yeah, um, Not steady, but mm-hmm. at least I was working. I was making a living between doing that and when I first moved to town, I had a a, a gig with this uh, landscaping company, mm-hmm. you know, so I'd get up in the morning and go do that, and then I'd play music at night whenever sure. I could, and then, uh, you know, go on the road here and there, enough to keep money rolling in, pay <laughs> my bills, you know, keep sure. moving.
0: Yeah. Who was the artist then?
2: Uh, a guy named Brad Martin. He was on Sony at the time. Okay. Um, he had a... You know, a couple of radio uh, songs that charted. You know, it was nothing that that ever got very big. But uh, uh, it was a a good first experience touring uh, based out of Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. And I met a lot of people through that as well. Things that I met people through doing that that led me to other things after that. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a a big part of my history in Nashville has been, you know, you do one, you do this one gig and then you meet somebody along the way and that leads to another gig. Right. And then you meet somebody during that gig, which leads you to another thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's I can't stress enough to the people who listen to this show how. Uh, how important relationships are mm. in this business mm-hmm. that's that's what it's all about.
0: I, I see it as a family tree in many respects. I have a couple friends and one of them I know you've worked at his studio, Eric Fritsch.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know Eric.
0: So Eric's from Columbus. Right. And he's one of the guys that I would talk to from time to time when I was still living up there. Yeah. And he'd say, man, come on down. Yeah. Come on down. So, and an influencer. Yeah. And uh, then he, I met a lot of people through
2: him. So did I. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah.
0: He, in many ways, is was like the root of that family tree. Yeah. That got me work with one person and then another, and then met that person, and then it would turn into, uh, I'm going to Georgia in a couple weeks to record with a songwriter uh, that this will be, I think, the fourth record I've done with this guy, and it was all as a result of meeting him through Eric.
2: Right. Yep.
0: you know what was the, I'm trying to think of the band Sam Lewis you yeah. guys tracked over there we did Sam's
2: first band. record over at Eric's place mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I always liked recording over there it's been a, been a few years since I've been over there to record anything but yeah we did Sam's first record there and uh, and that was that was a blast i think we recorded it in 2 days yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: did you meet Kenny Vaughn through Eric i sure well? did
2: yeah yeah on that project that was okay. that was the first time I had met Kenny. Gotcha. Was on Sam's record. And uh and yeah, and I, I wound up, you know, spending a lot of time with Kenny in the last ten years, I guess. Yeah. As a result of that. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. But that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. How you meet one person and that leads to other things. Yeah. Form a friendship, you know. Um not that you have to force it, but you know, it's like sometimes you just you get along with people. You can't do anything about that. Right, you know?
0: right, right, right. I want to talk some about the gig that you with Chris. Mm-hmm. But is there other things that led to your connection with him?
2: Well, that
0: you can look to.
2: Yes. Um, let's see. That sort of came about through um, from working with Sam, which started with. Uh, you know, working at Eric's place, recording. <clears throat> um, I worked with Sam for a long time, and then uh, we had a a sort of a bass player shift at one point, and at that time, J.T. Cure mm-hmm. wound up coming and playing with Sam. Okay. And uh, we got to be friends, and we worked a lot with Sam and a lot with Kenny. Uh, we'd go out and play shows. We recorded with Sam, did Sam's albums. And then uh, I guess what happened was uh, Chris was wanting to do something. Oh, Chris and JT go back 20 years. Okay. Uh, They grew up in eastern Kentucky together. So uh, it's it's one of those things where they were always doing things together. I hadn't really done any work with Chris yet, but Chris decided he wanted to do something different. He wanted to do... uh, You know, just something that, uh, basically like what we're doing now, you know, (laughs) at the time. Right. Um, And I guess he had asked JT about uh, a drummer to bring in on it. And JT recommended me. Yeah. And uh, that's basically how that came together. With Chris, I feel like uh, my job, a lot of times, is just stay out of the way. Yeah, you know, he's got such a huge voice and great songs, uh, and he's, you know, such a great guitar player. I, I just I want to listen. I just want to sit there and listen to that <laughs> and just get out of the way and let mm-hmm. him do that. You know, yeah.
0: because you're working with a known songwriter
2: mm-hmm.
0: who's now performing his own, decided to perform his own music and is becoming an artist in his own right. But still at the core is a songwriter and has been known for years as a songwriter. Prolific lyrics, like you say, great singer, very soulful sound that everybody brings to the table. Yeah. But your role as a drummer, and even going back to Sam Lewis and different things like that. And it's not necessarily unique to Nashville musicians, where you know everyone says it all starts with a song, whatever. But being cognizant of the songwriting, being cognizant of the lyrics and um what the songwriter is doing as a drummer, there's so much that we can do to step on their toes
2: sure is i've done it I've done just about everything I could do along the way to step on songwriters' toes <laughs> <laughs> at some point,
0: yeah. yeah. But what have you learned over that t- over time, especially working with somebody like Chris, that makes you really aware of how you what like what approach you bring to the table when you're
2: recording? Well, or, it's like I was saying, you know, I, I, I really try to stay out of the way. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've always been a song guy, you know. As far as like the, the sort of the school that I come from is, it's always been about songs for me. It's always been about singers and songwriters and and that type of music. And um, so I guess it's really just about supporting the song, Mm -hmm. you know, with what I do. And uh, like I said, staying out of the way. And there's a fine line between staying out of the way and supporting the song and giving it what it needs.
0: I've played so many of these songs that you've recorded. Okay, so I had to put that out there. There's yeah. bands that I play with that cover a lot of Chris's songs. Okay. So I have, uh, you know, a lot of the standards, but some other ones. And All like right. on Nobody to Blame, Yeah, there's a couple really great fills. So going the other direction, talking yeah. about supporting the song, really lifting it up. Yeah. I think it's a. Uh, and I know you keep your toms tuned pretty low, so yeah. it's, so when I listen, it's I'm not sure if it's a, if it's the tom or the floor tom, but there's a there's a there's a fill that you play going into the chorus. Uh, nobody to blame that just is. I, I just wait for it, man. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you got that that there's that tension that's building in the yeah. verses where there's just that four on the floor, rocking, and then all of a sudden. Because there's no vocal pickup, so there's room there. Yeah, yeah, but you're really setting the foundation for this, the resolute part of the song, that chorus that ties it all together.
2: Yeah, it feels like in that song, that's kind of when the dam breaks. You know, that's going into perfect. that chorus. I love that. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. you, you want to hold it back until that dam's ready to break. I know. And then know. there you go. You know. Yeah, go 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 go! Yeah. It's right there, I and love. it's not the fanciest thing. It's no, not the, it's, it's, it's definitely not not a complicated thing, but that's kind of what I'm talking about. Where I'm where I'm saying that is the way to support that and make the listener feel something. Yeah, you know, if yeah. I, if if I can do that in yeah. any way, that that's that's the way I'd like to do it.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. Going back to Lee Kelly. Um I said I said, y- you know Derek uh, uh, I am not finding a lot of things on him any suggestions on something that I I can ask him and he wanted to ask about working in the studio mm-hmm. um with Dave Cobb yeah. producing and the uh, assuming the organic approach yeah. to recording with Chris and um Dave at the helm and being his it being his studio and and not being he's assuming and I'm assuming along with him that there was maybe not as much of a time crunch with that process especially these last couple records
2: no i mean we we just we go in there and our plan is to have fun recording yeah um and there's not a time crunch um, I don't think you can put a time limit on something like that. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you, you can.
1: You don't can. Don't get me wrong.
2: You can, but it does, doesn't mean you should. But you don't get what you've got. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Some, you, know, you just never know. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty relaxed environment. Um, it was just a uh, very organic way uh, those albums came together. Nothing was ever forced. You know, it just like everything really flowed. Uh, mm-hmm. working working in the studio with Dave. <clears throat> Dave's a great producer and Dave has amazing ears and and uh, and Chris. Chris is a great producer as well, you know, he co-produced mm-hmm. this. Um, yep. so you know, we just it's just like anything else. You go in there and do a few takes and then you find the one that works and and then you build on it.
0: This episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. As drummers, you can see this shift and almost this full circle sound of organic sounds.
2: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've noticed a lot of that,
0: and I think it's—I think people are really loving it, and drummers are loving it, well, producers smart. are loving
2: it. Yeah, it's uh, as far as tuning for me. Um, there's really no big secrets or anything. It's just uh, you know, go for quality. You know, mm. go for what. Go for what that drum is supposed to do. Hmm. You know, tune in the range that your your drums are supposed to be in. And there's nothing really uh, revolutionary about anything that we're doing. In fact, with uh, parts of well, most of Traveler, and then parts of Volume One and Two, um, my goal was to make everything sound like 1978. Hmm. You know um, like to the point of like studying and this goes back years because that's something I've always been fascinated in was how do they get those sounds? Yeah. You know, the sounds that I love. Yeah. How do they get those? And, um, so there was a, there was a, a lot of that was recorded for instance with, uh, no bottom heads on the toms. Oh really? Yeah. And then, uh, and then going even a step beyond that and taking, uh, you know, gaff tape and putting paper towels on, on, the, on the batter head on the toms. Uh-huh. So to the point where it's just dead, yeah. you know, and, um, and then there were other things that we recorded with a full live drum kit, um, out in the, the big room there, uh, at, uh, Dave's place mm-hmm. where it was like, you know, room mics and, um, you know, double, Heads on the toms, front, you know, top and bottom, and front head on the bass drum. Mm-hmm. Um, big snare drum, wide open, fully intact
0: thing. front head. Yeah, like okay yeah. on the bass drum. Yeah,
2: okay. yeah, with a microphone in front of it, or gotcha. probably a couple of them. Um, but uh, so yeah, we, we just we, we were from one end of the spectrum to the other on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think regardless of of what kind of technique you use, as far as whether you're going to use a single headed tom or you're going to use a double headed tom you still have to tune in the range that that drum wants to be in gotcha and you know that's something else that that uh, we did uh, starting out was you know dave and i would we just take drums and hit them go around the studio and, and hit drums and and uh see how they sounded in the room mm-hmm. and and sort of build a kit out of what sounded best like we had four or five floor toms we were working with we picked the best one that we thought was the best one for that room and sounded the best in that space. Mm -hmm. And then there were some things that we did with the padded-down drums in a vocal booth Mm -hmm. um, that influenced the sound a lot. close mic'd, no big room sounds or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, know, snare drums, um, we use a variety of snare drums, and I always do. It doesn't matter what session I'm on. Uh, snare drums are always changing, unless you find something that just fits perfectly. Yeah. But I, I like to, I like to sort of choose a snare drum for the song. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily always need to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Superphonic may work on one song. Black Beauty may work on another song. Yeah. You know, we wound up with a, a wooden uh, snare, um, actually a piccolo snare on a few of the tracks, but you'd never be able to listen to it and point out that that's a piccolo snare. Right. You know,
0: because was it just tuned down, tuned down. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Maybe that snare was a little bit out of its range. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, You know, like I was talking about with the toms and tuning in their range, but um, with, with snare drums, I think you can get away with it more. If you were, if you were to take a piccolo snare and drop it way down, Mm -hmm. you can get a huge sound out of it. Yeah. Same with a big, you know, with a a bigger drum tuned up high. It's a unique sound. Yeah. Um, You have to be willing to try that, you know.
0: Just, I think one of the last times I recorded at Eric's, he had a piccolo and we tuned it down. And and, uh, a couple of times I've seen Lonnie Wilson in the studio, he was using a piccolo and it sounded humongous. And I think that with a snare drum, it's it's almost a different animal because you're triggering the snares and you have that response that is hypersensitive with a shallow drum, you know. Yeah. We, we've that's uh, you. A lot of players go to forty strand snares on a six and a half. Yeah, because of the distance between those things. And yeah. to get that sound, I always struggle with having a variety of snare drums to choose from in a session. Mm-hmm and knowing whether or not to because there's so many other factors the engineer the mic techniques sure of switching up snare drums for the sake of the song or for the fact that we've used the same snare drum for three tracks now it's time to switch snare drums
2: but is it you know <laughs> yeah sometimes it is i guess but yeah, uh, yeah. you know i think also a uh, the way the snare drum feels and sounds influences your performance. Mm-hmm. It, it, it it can change the way that and ride cymbals. Like, okay. I, I can be playing a certain way, and I can put up a different ride cymbal, and it changes my whole outlook. Um, same with snare drum. You know, it just it affects what you do uh, yes. with that song. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's a good thing. yeah what are you using live live I use uh, I've always used a black beauty live not always I mean for the last for the last uh, 12 or so years I've used a black beauty live six and a half by six 14 and half. okay yeah yeah uh, okay. recently I've started playing this uh, <clears throat> drum that Ludwig makes that's similar to the black beauty it's called the black magic and it's, yeah what is that it's a little different I mean it's the same it's a six and a half by 14. I think the shell thickness may be possibly a little thinner than a black beauty, but the lugs—it's uh, got two lugs on it—and mm-hmm. so they're, you know, with the black beauty you have the center lug mm-hmm. that, that goes across the beat of the snare drum. Well, these two these uh, two lugs are positioned a little bit differently on the, the shell, so I think that has something to do with the sound. Basically, the the gist of it is, is that I'm able to get a lower cleaner sound with that recently than i have been with the black black beauty Uh Uh, so i'm really happy with it right now it's what i've been using live uh this year i've sort of switched over to them i've had one for a few years but uh you know i wasn't convinced uh, but now i'm starting to see that it's just maybe it's the direction i'm headed in right now yeah Um, but for now it's it's working
0: yeah I think sometimes we, we get used to a certain thing and it works really well for us, but then sometimes we just feel inspired to change things up. Sure. You know, for just that, just the very reason of just wanting to just feel and hear something. new. Hey,
2: yeah, I'm all for it, man. You know, yeah. as long as it doesn't take take away from anything anybody else is doing, it's a, it's a good thing.
0: Going into the live world realm, what's one of your favorite songs to play?
2: Oh, man. It changes, you know? Yeah? It changes. Yeah. Um, I love them all, really. I'm not going to mm-hmm. lie to you. I'm, 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 being completely honest when I say that I look forward to playing every one of these songs. That's every great. Yeah. 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 And I've not always been that way, but but with with Chris and with this band and and mm-hmm. the songs that we're playing, I really look forward to every single one of them. That's all. Awesome. But as far as like which ones are my favorite, it changes because these songs <clears throat> have evolved. Mm since even since we've recorded them okay you know they, they've changed in uh, you know not not big ways but maybe a transition here and there or maybe you, we might stretch something out a little bit further in, in one spot you know so Chris can play uh, guitar um, so it's those changes that uh, that keep me like wanting to play certain ones more than others maybe Sure. Um, and it's a, I guess it's a, just a, comes from a willingness to, uh, to see where they can go live. Yeah. And, and not be afraid to try things. Yeah. You know.
0: And I think because of the organic sound and the size of the band, it gives you that freedom.
2: Yeah, it does. Uh, there's a lot of space involved in what we do uh-huh. with this music and, uh, you know sometimes you can feel that space and sometimes you can just let space be space yeah and that can be a beautiful thing right you know
0: is there anything is there anything that like okay every time i play this song it's hit or miss or it's a challenge or i look to this song as a challenge
2: yeah there's a few songs uh really uh the challenge i think is is in making it feel good um with a couple of the songs that we do there's sort of a the the challenging one, ones for me are the ones that are mid tempo but maybe on the backside mm-hmm. you know where it's it's important to, to place everything consistently on the backside of the beat yeah and and keep it where it needs to be so that it's still got a bounce to it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so that chris can sing uh, <clears throat> I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to explain. I guess the challenge is in keeping the time consistent, yeah, uh, from night to night, and uh, and not letting it rush because a lot of these songs would be it'd be easy to let them rush. Mm-hmm. We just did one, for example. Um, we did a, a song called uh, "Slow Simple Song" off of Volume Two mm-hmm. uh, for the ACM Awards recently, mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. And that was one of those songs where it, uh, it would have been easy to, to get on the front side of the beat and play it, not, not rush, but just play anxiously, I guess you could say, especially yeah. being live on television. Right, right. Um, so Chris sort of <clears throat> knew that, and before the performance, we talked about uh, his instructions to me were keep it, keep it right there, Put it as far back as is comfortable to do it. You Are know? you
0: using any tempo reference or anything None. like that? Gotcha.
2: It's all in our heads. Okay. Uh, it's uh, so it, that comes from a lot of listening. You know, you have to yeah, listen. Right. You have to be really. You have to know beats per minute. Yeah. Um, and trust that you know beats per minute. Mm-hmm. But it's just a feel thing, really. Beyond that. It's like Chris saying, "Put it as far back as you can put it comfortably." Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah, um, but that's the challenge for me. And your state
0: of mind, like you're talking about, you're on TV. There's the live performance. There's all those things that you being confident with that, and, and knowing the song, all those things are great references. I I, I know that for me and I wonder if other people relate to this that sometimes there's all these outside variables that affect how I'm feeling tempo
2: that oh day. man it's huge yeah there's there's everything yeah yeah everything that's running through your head, everything that's going on around you
1: yeah
2: um, and that's part of the part of the deal also is blocking that stuff out yeah especially live yeah you know just block it out. You're only there for an hour and a half right. to do this. Push everything else away for an hour and a half and, and give, give that to, the, you know, to the, the music that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. It's not that much of a sacrifice. It's an hour no. and out of your day. <laughs> <No>. That's it. <laughs> you know. that's, your, yeah. that's your work day, man. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah.
0: I asked about using like any tempo reference live,
2: but what about in the studio? Uh, Very little, if any Um, None of this None of these records We didn't use a click track on any of it Wow It was just uh, We might use Use a a metronome as a reference Mm -hmm. You know, just to When when you're doing multiple takes on a song It's good to have a point of reference You know, songs 85 beats per minute You want to At least hit the button and let it you know let it run for for 10 seconds just so you can get that in your head mm-hmm. and then you count off the song and you go yeah but you don't do it with the click you just use that as your reference point Uh, but then some others were there was no reference point it was just whatever felt good to everybody right. <clears throat> it's yeah you know, it's whatever you know whatever we needed to do for Chris to sing the song the way he needed to sing. It. Yeah. And a lot of times he would give a tempo, you know, and even live, uh, you know, on a few of these songs, Broken Halos is one that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of those ones where he starts it off on guitar. He yeah. starts singing just cold, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the tempo. Yeah. And it happened the same way in the studio. Yeah. There's no counting it off or anything. It's just follow him. There's another song. What's the other song? Um
0: uh fire away fire away I played that for a buddy of mine yesterday I said listen when the drums come in how they come <laughs> in on that
2: it's it's awesome man well uh thank you I, I I can't take full credit for it um those drum fills that lead yeah. into the into the choruses yeah yeah chris's idea oh cool chris's idea i mean there there i was doing something there it wasn't what wound up being on the album though okay uh but in when we were rehearsing that song before we went into the studio. Uh Chris had the idea of doing the Tom thing. Or mm-hmm. th- he had the idea of doing that rhythm. And I think he left it up to me as far as to as far as what to play that rhythm on around the kit. Sure. Dun, 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 you know? Yeah. And so I I I did it the first time on the toms and the second time uh, it's like snare tom. Snack second time it's a snare tom. Um, and then the third time, it's a combination of both, and and I think actually, it's it's not as linear the second time. It's more doubled up on, you know, two handed. Okay. Uh, just to make it bigger. Yeah. The third time. Yeah. It's like a Ringo rhythm, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, that yeah. like I said, man, it's Chris's idea. That's it's and, cool. And it's you have to take that that direction, you know.
0: Run with it. One other one, parachute. Mm-hmm. There's that turn around after I think the second chorus yeah. is like a bar two. Yep. Yep.
2: two. Did, where did that come from? Oh, um, you know, that was, I don't really know exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that was just us running it in the studio. And because, well, we had played that song and we had a pretty good arrangement of it going into the studio because we had played it live mm-hmm. up until that point. But the way that came about, I would imagine probably was Dave uh, okay. Dave Cobb saying, you know, let's, let's cut this here. Yeah. Let's get to this section quicker than right. what we're getting to, you know, because mm-hmm. it might have hung out for another bar. Right. And it's just a way of, you know, trimming it down to where you have uh, an arrangement where everything needs to be there. Yeah. And you don't have anything that doesn't need to be there. You yeah. cut, cut all that stuff
0: out. That's one thing I noticed about country music when I moved to Nashville. It is that not only from a production standpoint are people taking sections out, whittling it down, you know, okay, let's cut this intro from eight bars to four bars. Yeah. But actually shortening bars to fit vocal phrasing. Yeah. And I had never experienced that in that way before. Yeah. With uh, more of a song, I say country music, but but any style of music that is um, driven by the songwriting itself and the lyric con- lyrical content, and from a production standpoint, which sometimes we have to wear that hat as well, it, it brought to, it shed some light mm-hmm. on making the vocal
2: phrasing the most important thing. That's what it's all about, man. You yeah, know, that's that's really it's all it's all part of the song. Yeah, and so you have to you have to tailor it to fit the song, whatever you have to do. But I think also it's just it it can be a way to make make it just a maybe a little more interesting. You know, yeah, for the listener. Um, maybe if it's if it's not exactly during a vocal thing, it might just be a way to. I don't know. Um not do the obvious thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I said earlier, I, I there are not there's not a single song that we play that I don't look forward to every night. That's great. And in that I think it's just the the performance as a whole. Yeah. That I look forward to every single time we get we get to do it, you know. Yeah. That yeah, we're yeah. fortunate enough to get up there and play it play these songs for people. And that people show up to hear it. You know, it's there's a lot to be said for that, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure I'm incredibly fortunate yeah. it's, a, it's a blessing to be able to uh, to make a living uh, playing music no doubt yeah you know? it's incredible it really is yeah you gotta take stock of that man yeah yeah for sure I don't ever forget that that's that's one of the things that you know like we were talking about earlier where you you block out everything when you go on stage and you focus completely on what you're doing and you focus on, mm-hmm. on that space that, that you're in but that, those kind of things are always in my head doesn't matter if I'm blocking out everything else mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that's like wow I'm here playing music with incredible musicians some of my best friends in the world mm-hmm. and and the lights just come on the
0: lights just yeah that's <laughs>
2: <laughs> literally well the power was out for
0: a little bit and that's probably why this this part of the view <laughs> sounds differently but we've we've improvised and managed a way to to tie this all together. But Derek, man, I appreciate your time, man. Well, thank you. So much. Thanks for doing it's this. It's been a
2: pleasure. Thank you yeah. for having me.
0: Yeah. Cool. So there's my interview with Derek Mixon. I want to thank him for the time that he gave us uh, and the insight to working with such a great songwriter and singer Chris Stapleton. A lot of us that play country music or cover country music songs have been super excited to have somebody like Chris's music to perform and listen to and and. Derek being a part of that, it's been it's been fun to dig into his parts. Stay tuned next week for Zach's interview. For our Patreon members, we have new rewards that we're starting in the month of May, and uh, every two weeks we're going to add something cool and unique from our past guests. And the first installment that was put together by Ben Caesar, he's got this great five-page PDF on how to practice. I've had this thing for maybe four or five years, and I read it over and over. It's been so great. But for our Patreon members, even if you donate a dollar, you'll have access to these things. So it's going to be all different shapes and sizes, videos, PDFs, technique, uh, advice, all these different things that are being donated by our past guests. So go to the Patreon page and look for that stuff. And if you are a member, even at a dollar. Uh, you have access to that. So we're real excited about this and hoping to build more of the community from that. So I appreciate you all listening and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.